don't have a Bible, if you could just raise your hand real quick. We could get a Bible in your hands. Everybody's good. All right. Well, let's pray and then we'll dive into the word. Lord, we ask for your spirit. We ask that you would bless us with the opportunity to experience you through this text. God, that this wouldn't just be a, another message or, or, or just words, Lord, but these uh, words would be invitations to, to uh, enter into fellowship with you right now. Uh, we would enter into your presence, God. We would uh, experience you and, and what you have for us through uh, your word. So I pray that you would speak to us, that we would see the life-giving power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, last, not last week, have it, have it to say in that, three weeks ago, uh, we were in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and, and the title of that message was Yahweh's Will, Yahweh's Way. If you remember, David had an awesome opportunity, or so it appeared, right? Saul came to use the bathroom, just so happens it was the same cave that David and his men were. It, it seemed so obvious, it seemed like God had orchestrated all of it, but everything wasn't what it seemed. See, yes, God orchestrated that, but it wasn't for David to take out Saul. It was God testing David to see if he would trust God to do things his way. And we see David knew the Lord wanted to restrain him. So ultimately he restrained himself and he said, I can't slay the Lord's anointed. Yes, it was God's will that David would become the next king of Israel, but it had to happen God's way. Now, similarly, in this next chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 25, we'll get through the whole chapter tonight, God is going to test David uh, in a very similar way. He, he's going to test David. Yes, the circumstances are different, but he's testing him basically with the same lesson. This time, David... He's going to almost fail. Luckily for David, and it's not luck, it's God's sovereignty, God is going to intervene and send someone to cut David off to prevent him from making a decision that he would ultimately regret. And that's why the title of this teaching is Preventative Providence. Preventative Providence. See, God, providence is uh, basically um, the idea that God intervenes on, on those uh, in the lives of those who he loves and uh, of the lives of those who he's chosen, of those who have chosen him back. He intervenes by providing, by preventing, by doing so many different things. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this chapter. God is going to intervene in David's life to prevent him from falling into sin. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 1. Now, let me preface this. We got 44 verses to go through, so we're going to have to go through it kind of fast. Some of the points I won't be able to elaborate on too in-depthly. Uh, and there will be like a bunch of little nuggets on the way, so uh, along the way. So I'm just going to give you a heads up with that. We have a lot to get through in a very short period of time. So have patience with me. First Samuel chapter 25, verse 1. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at, 
at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Samuel died. Now, this is tragic. We haven't seen uh, much action from Samuel in quite a while, but we got to remember who this guy was. He was a prophet. He was a priest. He was a judge. He was a very godly man. He was uh, a man that ultimately anointed the first two kings of Israel. He was a man that came on the scene. If you remember when we first started this book, he was a man that came on the scene and brought light to a very dark time and period in the life of the Israelites. He came on the scene when the ark was captured and he was a part of getting the ark back or he at least will be. So, we see that Samuel passes. Then in verse 2, it says, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. So we see this contrasting thing happening between Nabal and Abigail. Let's focus on Nabal first. Before his name is even mentioned, we see his wealth. He's got thousands of sheep. He, he has land. He has property. He has prominence. He has position. He has all these different things. And the Holy Spirit inspired the author to write these things down before they before uh, they, he even mentioned Nabal's name because this is really what defines this guy. He's all about wealth. He's all about riches. He's all about material things. That's what leads this guy in the decisions that he makes as we'll see moving forward. Now, this guy, he had a lot of sheep, right? 3,000. And it was the time to shear sheep. See, there was a specific harvest time, typically once a year, for a, a sheep shearer, okay? And, and basically, uh, if you don't know what shearing sheep is, it's, it's when you cut the wool off of a sheep. And wool was a, um, a, a very, uh, uh, high, what, what's the word I'm thinking of? <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it, it was a possession that people wanted because they made their clothes primarily out of wool so this guy had a really good business going on three thousand sheep once a year he's making a lot of money as the text mentions he's very rich but there would be this specific time period that they would harvest all this wool and they basically would have this big feast it was this time to celebrate it was also in this culture a time that you were like extra hospitable why because you have an abundance you got all this wool you're selling all this wool and you have an abundance and it was uh, obviously uh, expected for god's people when you had an abundance that you gave abundantly okay that's going to come up later in the text something else that's super important is nabal his name actually means in the hebrew fool he's a wealthy man but he's a foolish man and his name absolutely defines him something else that is interesting it says he was of the house of caleb now caleb it actually means dog and many scholars suggest that 
what the author is trying to say is that Nabal had a dog-faced appearance, okay? Not necessarily the character of a dog, but the looks of a dog. And the reason they say this is because when you compare the character qualities of Nabal and Abigail, she's described as beautiful and wise. He's described as foolish and dog-faced, if you will. We don't know if he really looked like a dog. It's interesting to think about, and I'll bring it up again. So let's look at Abigail real quick. Verse 3 again. And the name of his wife was Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. In contrast to the description of Nabal, we see Abigail. She was a woman of understanding or a woman of wisdom. She was a woman of beauty. And this phrase that they use here to describe Abigail's beauty, it's only used a couple other times in the Old Testament. It's used for Rachel and it's used for Esther. So the idea is she was of exceptional beauty. Like she wasn't just like a good looking girl. Like she was beautiful, like stunning, like Elizabeth, beautiful. (laughs) This woman and this man are like the opposite. They really are. He's foolish. He's rich. Why'd she marry him? Maybe it was because of the money. Likely not. She's a wise woman. This was more likely an arranged marriage, which was uh, which would often happen in this culture. And now you have this foolish man marrying this beautiful and wise woman. It's not a marriage that exactly lines up. Obviously not very compatible. But this can also happen not just in arranged marriages. This can happen in normal marriages where you choose who your spouse is going to be. That's why it's so important that we don't marry someone that we're unequally yoked to. Specifically, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says that. Don't, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. But it doesn't just apply to unbelievers. Obviously, a Christian man or woman shouldn't marry someone who isn't a christian their faith you might think well i'll marry him then i'll save more likely than not you'll get led astray we even see that happen with solomon but this doesn't just apply to a believer and an unbeliever this also applies to your level of spiritual maturity where are you at spiritually and that other person that you're looking to potentially marry where is that person at spiritually spiritually are we are we equally yoked are we on the same spiritual page because anyone can convince you that your spirit they're spiritual for a short period of time and this is so important for anyone that's considering marriage many of you are married uh, but some of you may not be and i know some that aren't but when you're looking at the other person that you're considering having this serious relationship that might wind up in marriage, it's so important to really understand their spiritual maturity. Really understand where they're at. Anyone can fool you into thinking that they're spiritual uh, for a short period of time, as I mentioned, but, but what does the long term look like? Does this person show that they love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are they doing the little things? Are they faithful with the little things how do they treat their family how do they treat their mom that's a huge one how do they treat their dad how do they treat their siblings i know many women sadly 
instead of married someone that they thought was wise and spiritual and they ended up being in a ball because they didn't really, they were all caught up in the moment and the emotions and the, oh, this feels so good. And later on, we see, sadly, set up with someone that's not spiritually compatible. That was the case for Abigail in the ball, not to knock Abigail again. She probably didn't have a choice in the matter. This was probably, as I mentioned, arranged and forced. But what's most important in this contrasting thing that's happening here is that God is going to use both of these individuals. God is going to use foolish Nabal and he's going to use wise Abigail. And this is the first of three points, only three tonight. God uses the foolish and the wise. God uses the foolish and the wise. God will use the foolish to test us and he'll use the wise to help us. The fools. Maybe you got a boss that's a fool. Maybe you have a coworker that's a fool. Maybe it's uh, uh, an uncle or an aunt or a cousin. Maybe it's a child. And we can look at the fool and uh, get so frustrated, as David will with Nabal. But it's important to note that God will absolutely use those fools in your life to teach you, ultimately, by testing you. And he'll test you in so many different ways. We'll see how God tests David through this fool named Nabal. But God doesn't just use the fool, as we mentioned. He also used the wise. And he's going to use this wise woman, Abigail, to help David. And God will use wise spiritual people in our lives to to help us, to make sure we're walking down the right road, to make sure that we stay on track. But recognize, God will use any individual in your life to teach you extremely valuable lessons. Now, I'm not saying, well, God's going to use the fool, so I should surround myself with a bunch of fools, so I'm tested and I grow. No, don't do that. Actually, the Bible speaks against that. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 7, it says, stay away from the fool. Stay away from the fool. Now, I have some family members that, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, sometimes they can be somewhat foolish. And hey, during certain seasons of the year, uh, I have to be around them for those time periods. And I know God will use them to test me. But I don't have to surround myself with people that act foolishly all the time. That's on me. It's one thing to recognize when God's using someone in your life to test you. It's another thing to surround yourself with people that God is using to constantly test you that will ultimately lead you astray. But just as God, again, uses the fool, he also uses the wise and he calls us to cling to the wise. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, if you want to write it down, Proverbs 13, 20, he says, he who walks with the wise will become wise. You hang out with the wise, you'll become wise. You can be not very smart, not have a lot of understanding, but the Bible promises you hang out with wise people long enough, you're going to go from foolish to wise. You will become wise. That wisdom will ultimately rub off on you. So who are you surrounding yourself with? Are you surrounding yourself with the foolish Nabals of this world or the wise Abigails? It's a new year. It might be for some time to make new friends. I don't know. 1 Samuel chapter 25, continuing on, verse 4 says, 
When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers, your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you, therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Let's break this down a little bit to get some understanding. Okay, so what's happening here is David and his 600 men, they're watching Nabal's sheep. 3,000 sheep, that's a lot of sheep to watch out for. Now, we already know that the Philistines are raiding Israelite villages and cities. They're taking sheep and other things as well. So this would have been a, a, a very valuable thing for Nabal to have these mighty men protecting his flock. Sheep, not only do you have to worry about the Philistines, you also have to worry about animals, wild animals attacking the sheep. Sheep, they also have a tendency to run away. So having 600 more shepherds would have been super valuable. Shepherds were used to losing sheep. They were used to losing them from, yes, different kinds of animals, from them running away, you name it. So David is really doing a great service to Nabal by watching this sheep. Now, Nabal, we don't see that he asked David to do this, and the text implies that he didn't. But David, being the man after God's heart that he is, he does this good deed for Nabal, and he just wants food for his men in return. So, some interesting things in the text here. It says uh, that Nabal was shearing the sheep, meaning David was likely watching uh, Nabal's sheep for quite some time with his men, and he waited for that harvest period. Why? Because he wanted to wait for Nabal to be in a good financial position so that he wasn't a burden to him. He's going to have this plenty. Remember, it's harvest season. They're supposed to be super generous during this time period. So he waited strategically so that Nabal would have the means to help out his army with food. That's all he really wanted. And he sent these messengers uh, with a peace offering, which is important because he has 600 men. He only sent 10. If he was trying to intimidate Nabal, he would have came with all 600 and said, hey, we're taking what we want and that's the end of it. No, that wasn't David's heart. He, he, he wanted to make peace with Nabal. He said, hey, I provided a service. Can I get a little something for this service? He also sends the message that Nabal can trust that they did a good job. Not one sheep went missing. Nothing went missing, which was miraculous in and of itself. And they didn't harm anything. They didn't do anything bad. They were good to the shepherds. He says, talk to your shepherds. We, we, we took care of them. We took care of your sheep in a very nice way so they can vouch for us, which they will later on down the road. And he also says, we came on a feast day. Again, this was the time of abundance, the time of plenty, the time of harvest. Harvest, the time where he had everything he could possibly need plus more. This was a perfect time for him to be able to provide for these 600 men. 
And finally, he says, please give whatever comes to your hand. So he's not saying, hey, we worked 600 men at this many hours for this period of time. You owe us, you know, a million dollars. No, he didn't do that. He said, just give us whatever you can. Like, we're not asking for everything. We just like want a hot meal. Like, that's it. That's all we're asking for. So the time that David spent taking care of these sheep, uh, it was absolutely fair for Nabal to fork up some food for these guys. First Samuel chapter 25, verse 10. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my wheat meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So listen to this. Listen to what Nabal says. First off, he says, Who is David? Now, this isn't a, I don't know who David is because everyone knows who David is, right? Saul slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. David is literally the most popular person in the land. He's not saying like, I don't know this David. He's saying, who, who is David? David, who are you? You're a nobody. You're not even in the kingdom anymore. You're a nobody. That's what he's getting across to David to add insult to injury. He continues on. And he says this, look again, there are many servants nowadays who break away each from his, his master. What he's saying is, David, you're a rebellious servant. All you are is some dude that rebelled against Saul and ran away. We know David is not a rebellious servant. We know that he's the most faithful servant Saul ever had. But he's being accused of being a rebellious, faithless servant. So in Nabal, he continues to insult him. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? He's insulting the men as well in the sense that basically saying, who are you? And I don't know where you're from. You guys are nobodies just like your leader. But look what else he says when he refers to his possessions. He says, my bread, my water, my meat, mine, 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 mine. He saw everything that he had as his and not as God's. How do you see your possessions? Do you see them as mine, mine, mine? Or do you see them as God's? Because ultimately the Bible says that all of this is God's. Every single thing we have is God's. Our cars, our houses, our jobs, even our family members. They're all God's. He's allowing us to be stewards over those things. And we can choose whether we're good, generous stewards. Or whether we're selfish stewards. See, God isn't just testing David, he's testing Nabal. This was a test for Nabal to give him an opportunity to be generous. We know him to be an evil man. This is a chance to repent from that. Give a little this time. You got this whole army, they did you a good service. How about you take care of them and give them some food and some water and give them a little bit of what you have. See, generosity is something that the Lord expects from us. It's a spiritual discipline, if you will, just like any other spiritual discipline. You look at prayer, you look at reading your Bible, coming to church, uh, serving, fasting, all these different things that the Lord calls us to do. Generosity, giving is a part of it. Why? 
For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God loves, God gives. And we're called to be imitators of God as dear children. Because He gives, we too are called to give. And sometimes, just like God did with the ball, He'll send people in our lives to to test us on our generosity. Are you truly generous? It could be a homeless person on the corner. It could be a friend that's in need. It could be tithing. It could be really anything and everything. The important thing is God's trying to produce that character of generosity in us. Now, I'm not saying that every homeless person that you see on the corner, you should give them something. But if you have had experiences like me, there's sometimes I feel that knock on the heart that I'm supposed to give them something. Like, yeah, this time I'm supposed to give this specific individual something. And there are times when certain friends and family members, uh, you you probably shouldn't give because you might be enabling them with a certain sin. And it takes the discernment of the Spirit to understand when to be giving and, and when to say, hey, this is hurting this person by giving. But the point is generosity is a crucial component component of the Christian faith. And recognize, just as God did with Nabal and David, sometimes God will send people into your life to test you in that area. Are you generous? Are you giving? 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 12. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. David's response, gird on your sword, right? Awesome, David. Yeah, Dude, get this guy. This guy is wicked. He's a horrible man. He's likely a horrible husband. He's a greedy, selfish pig. The sword. He deserves the sword. Does he? Regardless of what he deserves, this obviously isn't the right response that David's having in this moment. He's acting out in his flesh. He's acting out in anger. Why does he want to slay this guy? Not only did this man uh, not give the provision that he should give, but he insulted David. He humiliated David, and not just to his face, behind his back to his men. David's hurt. And he's acting out. See, David was doing a good thing, right? He was helping out this guy, Nabal. He was taking care of the sheep because he's a good shepherd. And then here comes this man, this guy, Nabal, this fool, this evil guy that insults David. And just when David was on the right track, doing the right thing, here comes Nabal. And knocks him off course. And now he's getting ready to commit murder. Not just against Nabal, but his entire household, the text says. See, we can be on the right track, doing the right thing. And then here comes this Nabal, this discourager. This person that insults us. This person that makes us so angry that we want to lash out. We want to do something. We want to have vengeance. It's exactly what happened to David. And we can expect it to happen to us. I guarantee you, if there aren't Nabals in your life, there have been and there will be. (laughs) There will always be Nabals. Maybe seasons you won't have the Nabals, but the Nabals will come and go 
They'll come to test you just as David is being tested now. But David, right now in this moment, he's beginning to fail the test. He wants to slay this man. He wants to commit murder. And he's going to send, it says, 400 of his men here. This isn't like an intimidation thing. Okay? He's going there to wipe everyone out. He's not just going there to rob him and take his possessions. He's literally going to kill him and his whole household. The text goes on, 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 14. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them. Then we were in the fields, when we were in the fields. They were all they were there were they were a wall to us both by night and day all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, no one consider what you will do for harm is determined against your master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. So apparently one of these servants just heard the conversation that Nabal had with the ten men and he knows there's going to be a problem. This guy has some wisdom too. The unnamed servant, he's ultimately the one that gives Abigail the message and Abigail's going to be the one that the Lord uses to prevent David from falling into this sin. Not to ruin the story, but this servant, this unnamed servant is a super valid person in this text. He's absolutely crucial so he goes and he tells the abigail why because abigail's why she has understanding she actually thinks he knows she can get him and the family and the whole household out of this situation they knew without even talking to david that david was going to do something about this they knew just by the words of nabal that david was going to come after them so he shares this message with Abigail. Continuing on, 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of uh, roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her servants, go on before me. See, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of the hill. And there were David and his men coming down toward her. And she met them. Abigail acted quick. Says she moved in haste and she accumulated an abundance of possessions for these guys, like very quickly, which tells us that Nabal had plenty. Okay, he had plenty to give. He was just greedy and he didn't want to give it. It didn't take her like days, like harvesting this stuff, getting this stuff together. Like she did it ASAP. Goes to show you how wealthy this guy actually is, that all these things were simply on hand. But it also says that Abigail, she didn't tell her husband. It's interesting. We're going to see Abigail as such a good example in parts of these texts. Uh, And she's super submissive to David, but she's not submissive to her husband. Now, we understand because the guy is a fool and the man is evil. But this part isn't right. 
She, she should have talked to Nabal. Now Nabal might have said, hey, uh, no, we're not going to do this. But biblically speaking, she should have said, should have said, uh, should have said something. Nevertheless, Abigail is bailing her husband out of potentially dying, which likely would have happened if she didn't do this. Goes on, 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 21. Now David had said, surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow was or fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. So look at what David says. First off, he says, surely in vain, I have protected all of this man's possessions. This reveals David's motivation behind why he was doing what he was doing. He was doing it to get a reward. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you serve in the capacity that you serve? Why do you do the things for the Lord that you do for the Lord? Is it to gain something? Is it to get something? See, David assumes that this labor was in vain. But the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says that our labor is not in vain if it's in the Lord. If he's doing this for the Lord and just trying to be a good guy, all right, man, we helped this guy out. He didn't help us. It is what it is. I wasn't doing this to just get food for my guys. Uh, I was doing this because this was the right thing to do. It'd be a different story. But we see David's motivation for doing what he was doing was off. Goes on. First Samuel chapter 25, verse 23. Note real quick. In verse 22, look, David says, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light, we see David's intentions are to slay everyone. Moving on, verse 23. Now, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, oh, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. This must have made an immediate impression on David. So much so that he's going to marry her in just a little bit. Uh, but think about it. You have this beautiful woman coming with this bounty of possessions. And then she gets there and falls at your feet in an act of submission, begging for mercy. Like, what's David really going to do? Like, kill this lady? Like, kill her whole family? Obviously, he's kind of like thrown off by it. Man, this woman just provided for our army. She made things right. Who is this woman? But look what else Abigail says. She says, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. Don't blame my foolish husband. The sin's on me. (laughs) Crazy. The character of Abigail. And then she says, and please let your maidservant speak in your ears. In humility, she asks David to speak. David would be wise to listen. And this is the second point. Listen to the wise. Listen to the wise. David will listen to Abigail. It's the best decision he makes in this chapter. But look at what God does. 
God sends this woman to cut David off to prevent him from making this dangerous decision that is going to cost him so much, or at least would had he followed through, which we'll get into in a moment. But often God does this with us too. Sometimes we're headed down a dangerous path. Sometimes we're making decisions that we really shouldn't be making. And then God sends that person, that one that's spiritually minded, that has some wisdom. And they speak truth into our life. And we can look at it as, oh, this is just a friend looking out. Or we can look at in God's sovereignty, he's trying to prevent me from 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 making this decision that is going to cost me dearly. Sometimes God will send those people. And that's his responsibility. But it's our responsibility to listen to those people. In Proverbs chapter 12, in Proverbs chapter 12, Obviously, a a book of wisdom. It says this in verse 15, Proverbs 12, 15. It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Think about this in context to David. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. David, he's being a fool right now. What he's getting ready to do is foolish. Okay, Nabal's foolish, but David right now, he is being foolish. He's right in his own eyes until what? Until he who heeds counsel is wise. Until this wise woman comes and approaches and deters him from making this devastating decision. We often can head down these foolish paths. But we got to incline our ear to hear the words of the wise. And, and don't just chalk it up as a you know, good friend just looking out. Recognize that God does this. He sends wise people into your life. It's literally, if you would, a messenger from the Lord on so many different occasions. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 25. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is, is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young man, men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make For my Lord, an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. We see that Abigail approaches David with with such tact uh, in the way that she communicates. And it appears, if you look back at verse 28, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. It appears that Abigail is aware of the promise that Yahweh made to David. Okay, And she's going to speak some prophetic things in here as well. But apparently the promises that were made to David concerning his house and him being the king uh, were known. Uh, by many people, if not all. Abigail, at the very least, was aware of it. So, what she's trying to do is help David look at the big picture. 
Did, did, not God, did God not promise you that your house was going to endure? That you were going to be the king? Don't go and take matters into your own hand. Remember, you've got to trust the Lord in this. She's trying to inspire David to think spiritually and trust the Lord. So she continues on in verse 29. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel that this will be no grief to you, nor offense of heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So look at what she does. Again, being so tactful in how she communicates. First she says, yet a man has risen to pursue you, to remind him, your battle isn't against Nabal, your battle is with Saul. He's the one that's out to kill you. Nabal, in other words, is no threat. But she also says, look at this wording here. But the uh, in the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. What does that remind you of? When David slayed Goliath, what is she doing? She's using words to try to bring David back to remembrance uh, so that he can recall how God has delivered him in the past. Remember, David, it wasn't the stone or the sling that slayed Goliath. It was God. It was God's hand behind the stone uh, and behind the sling. That's the only reason Goliath went down. And David knew that. And he said that back in 1 Samuel chapter 17. The Lord is going to defeat this giant. It's all the Lord that's going to take care of me, that's going to avenge me. So she's trying to remind him, hey, David, you didn't get to where you were by avenging yourself. You didn't get to where you are now uh, by taking matters into your own hands. Remember, you got to where you are because you've trusted the Lord and the Lord has protected you. The Lord has avenged you. See, Abigail... She comes off with wisdom, yes, with also humility. We see this act of submission as she falls at his feet and asks him if she speaks, but if she can speak, but her submission isn't silent. Submission isn't always silent. And David is going to get so much wisdom in the counsel of Abigail's words. Ladies, this is like the best text to look at when it ever comes to considering how do I confront a man? Uh, whether it's your husband or your brother or your dad, when you look at how Abigail does this, it's not that you have to bow at the feet. I don't recommend that, okay? But the words that she uses, she inspires spirituality. She doesn't get on him and say, you idiot, you're going to lose everything if you make this decision. You're just as foolish as my husband. No, she doesn't say any of that. She used these, these strategic words to inspire spirituality, to encourage him, to make him want to be a better man. There's so much wisdom in how Abigail communicates to David. David's in the wrong, but he doesn't see it until she tells him. But she doesn't just tell him, it's how she tells him. Moving on, 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 32 
Then David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me and blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left in the ball. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. In God's providence over David's life, he sent Abigail as a way of escape. Abigail and her words was David's way of escape, but David still had to listen. David still had to take the way of escape. And that's the third and final point. Take the way of escape. Take the way of escape. It's one thing to see God's hand at work. It's one thing to listen, but it's another thing to do something with the words that you're receiving. Think about what this would have cost David if he made this decision, if he slayed Nabal. Now he's a murderer. Now Saul has a legitimate reason to kill David. Right now he doesn't have a legitimate reason to come after David. But if he slaughters this guy and all the males in his household, now Saul has something to work with here. He'd also be slaughtering innocent people. So he'd just be a king after Saul. He'd be the same type of king as Saul. That's not what God wanted. As well, the people, they would have lost trust in him, right? What? David? The guy that we love? Now he's just going around to villages, slaying people and taking their stuff? Like, who is this guy? They would have been afraid of him. David had a lot to lose had he followed through and made that decision. So he thanks. He understands the error of his way. And he thanks Abigail. He recognizes that she's a messenger from the Lord. Thank God that God sent Abigail to deter me from making this horrific decision. This is something that I don't, don't think that we think or consider enough. How often do you consider the blessing of being kept from sin? The blessing from being kept of sin. I don't even think we're that aware of it. But when you look at it, David is blessing the Lord. He's praising the Lord because he's being kept from sin. I guarantee you for each and every one of us, it happens a lot more than we would ever realize. Sometimes we're aware. Other times, not so much. But we should be aware more often. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The things that we're tempted with, whether it's anger and I want to murder someone, could happen, hopefully not. Or it's lust, it's pride, it's greed, it's covetousness, you name it. All these things that we're tempted with, every time God promises in his word, he'll make a way of escape. (laughs) There's a way not to, you don't have to do it. There's a way, there's a door to walk through if we open our eyes and our ears and we see it and we walk through it. Sometimes it comes in the form of people like it was in this case, this wise woman, Abigail. And when you look at your past and maybe decisions that you have made or didn't make, 
And you look back at maybe times, and I was really thinking about this, where God prevented you from making a catastrophic mistake in sinning. Man, thank God that he does that. Because where would we be if he didn't do that? I told you this story in the past. I'm going to share it in a different light. But there was a time, the time that I was struggling in ministry the most uh, was four or five years ago. And it was the one real time uh, that I was considering walking away from ministry. I, I was so frustrated about how things played out and, and how I was challenged and tested. And I didn't think things were fair, but I wasn't really seeing God's sovereignty in the whole thing. And then my friend Dirk, who many of you have met, he had this dream, right? That this leprechaun told him, dead serious, this leprechaun gave him Hebrews chapter 3. And it says, uh, in other words, don't be carried away by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't harden your heart as in the day of rebellion and dirk gave that to me it was a message from the lord dude don't harden your heart about this you were the one that did wrong don't put this on someone else don't harden your your heart because of sin and make a decision that's going to cost you so much down the road i had no idea what god had for me i was a couple years into ministry but i wonder what would have happened if god didn't send that way of escape if God didn't send that leprechaun to Dirk and I didn't get that message, it would have cost me. I wouldn't be here now. So important that we see these ways of escape that the Lord gives us and we walk through them. Now, for David, this isn't the first time he learned this lesson. Don't avenge yourself. Trust in the Lord. He just... He, he practiced it in the last chapter, remember? Had the chance to kill King Saul, and he didn't because he knew the Lord didn't want him to do it. So he restrained himself. He was able to restrain himself from sinning in that text, but in this text, he wasn't able to restrain himself. And the Lord had to send someone to restrain him, to give him these words of wisdom so that he wouldn't commit this act. But it's the same lesson. And actually, we're going to see the same lesson again uh, next week in chapter 26. But the point is, the lesson we learn in one circumstance should transfer over to the next circumstance. If God taught us something here, and maybe my situation looks different here, but it's the same lesson, that lesson that we learned here, this example, trusting in God should carry over to this circumstance. Think about it. So with King Saul, I don't need to avenge myself, though this man has wronged me. Saul wronged David way more than Nabal did, okay? He's out to kill him, not just saying insulting words. Okay, uh, yeah, I need to trust God here that he's going to make me king, but when this guy insults me, I, I can't trust God to avenge me. Uh, I have to take matters into my own hands. And, and it's literally a lesser degree of the lesson, yet David is failing the test, or at least he was before Abigail said something. The point is, when God teaches us a lesson, it's got to carry through, and we've got to be able to make the connections to other circumstances that it applies to. It's things like this, and we all do this. It's like, I don't know where you were, but... Uh, I've explained where I was and, and thinking about, yeah, I trust God to deliver me from the bondage of addiction and this hideous life that I was living, but uh, I don't trust God to take care of my financial situation. It's like, what? Like you trust God there and you trust God here because God proved himself here. Yeah, he's going to prove himself here. 
the lesson has to transfer over from circumstance to circumstance. First Samuel chapter 25, verse 36. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So it was in the morning... When the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Look at that. David didn't have to do it. He didn't have to do anything. He could trust the Lord and the Lord proved once again. He's faithful. He will avenge David. We don't have to avenge ourselves as we've mentioned in the past. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 39. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil, for the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. guess that's one way to take care of widows. Marry them. Uh, well, that was David's philosophy. Anyways, I'm not encouraging that. Um, if the Lord's leading it, it is what it is. Uh, anyways, so David, he marries Abigail. And it goes on to say in verse 40, When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, Here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Such a servant. So Abigail rose in haste and rode on a donkey attended by five of her maidens. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel. And so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galam. So we see that David's got a couple wives now. So Michal, she was given away by Saul to some other person because Saul was just doing anything and everything he could to get back at David. So he gives away his wife, pretty cold. Uh, but then he marries this other woman. So the question's always posed and people like to bring up these things. What about David? What about Solomon? We see polygamy taught in the Bible. It is not taught in the Bible. We see situations where people had multiple wives. But you know what? Every time we look at those situations they're bad situations (laughs) the families that we see with these polygamous relationships whether it was leah and rachel or sarah and hagar they end with devastation with destruction god never intended us to have multiple wives or multiple husbands he said the two shall become one flesh Not the three, not the four, not the five, not the six, not the ten. He says the two shall become one flesh. And we see it solidified in the New Testament. Paul tells Timothy, hey, you got to be a husband of one wife. So the Bible absolutely doesn't say polygamy is a good thing. Now, we can't say that David was sinning here because uh, it wasn't uh, given to the people yet that you uh, couldn't marry more than one person. So we can't say that directly it was a sin, but it obviously 
wasn't a great decision. And we see David's family life as great of a, as a king he is and a psalmist and a prophet. His family life is a mess, as we'll get into in the future. But the point of this chapter is, once again, we see God's providence and protection over David's life. He prevented him from making a decision that would have cost him dearly, could have cost him perhaps everything. Imagine he slaughters these people and he becomes king later on and nobody trusts them. They live in fear of him just as they lived in fear of Saul. See, God, he's still in the process of making his king. And he often had to intervene so that he would be sure that David would become the king he needed him to become. Same holds true for us. God will often intervene in our lives to try to help us become the people that we need to be. But we got to see it. We got to see when God intervenes, whether it's sending a person or putting something on your heart uh, to pray, to come to church, to connect more, whatever the case may be, God does intervene in our lives, but he will not force our will. He won't force our will. He gives us free will. And he tries to help us know for sure that he's there and tries to lead us down the straight path. But we're the ones that have to make the decision to walk down it, just as David did. He could have closed his ear to Abigail and said, I'm setting my ways, I'm going to do what I'm, I want to do. But he recognized Abigail was sent from the Lord to cut him off and to prevent him from making this careless decision. We can trust that God will always give us a way of escape. We can trust in this preventative providence, if you will. But it's our responsibility to take that way of escape. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, how you protect us. Lord, how you try to prevent us from sin. Lord, I pray that we would see that more often. That we would see your sovereignty in our life. We know you won't make us do things, but sometimes you try to get things across to us that are so clear and we close an ear, we close our eyes because we're set in our ways, we're set in our decision, and this is what we want to do, whether you're in it or not. God, I pray that you would give us the humility to open our minds and our hearts, that we would see you intervene, and as you try to prevent us from, from walking down a path that leads to destruction, Lord, we would see the doorway that leads to life and we would take the way of escape. In Jesus' name, amen.